And oh my goodness, it certainly is a wonderful world. Bay FM 100.3, the heart and soul of the Bay. Good evening. Thank you so much, Jacko, for the last uh, three hours of music, getting you home this afternoon. I'm Ken Maxwell, Dean Lawler and I. We're here with Searchlight tonight, and have we got a banger of a show for you tonight. Dean. This is nice. going to be exciting. Yes, yes, I think it's going to be great. We've got some fantastic guests on the night. Yeah. And um, I think, yeah, it's going to be a very interesting subject. I, I think so. I, I think so. I think that um, when we get into the meat of it all, once we get the, the guys on the line and really start drilling down a bit, we've got a very interesting show tonight. And it all starts with, a, with an idea that you had about the security, and I'm using that word in inverted commas, that Australia has in the Southeast Asian region. Yeah. I think it's been a big question lately. We've been talking about China and China basically ruffling its feathers and doing a, basically I'd say probably a little bit of a standover on our country lately. And um, it's actually caused a little bit of drama with trade and so on else. But I think also too, the security side to it, where do we stand if a conflict does arise Correct. in the South Pacific region yeah. and uh, Southeast Asian region? Absolutely yeah. right. There's, the thing is, there's been so much talk about COVID and rightly so. I mean, yeah, it's a serious thing. Yeah. But with all that attention, a lot of other stuff that's happening around us is not getting as much attention as maybe it possibly should. And that's where we're going to tonight. Mate, we'll have Michael Shoebridge on. Yep. From Aspie, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And he'll be talking about the, the strategies and situations that are occurring within that region and how we stand in that region. Absolutely. And, and, that, we've and got, the pedigree on, on Michael Shoebridge is just amazing. It certainly. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to give away the secrets just yet, but we'll talk about his biography in just a moment or four. Yeah. Yeah. The ASPI definitely a fantastic institute as oh, far correct. as information for strategy and defence. Yeah. Well, they, they basically advise the government on ideas, policies, strategic um, uh, uh, concepts, etc., etc. Yep. Yeah. And Michael himself is the director of the Defence Strategy and National Security, so yeah. he should have a bit of an insight to where we stand yeah. in this situation. It's kind of getting pretty close to the top, isn't it? Oh, it is. And then we've got uh, Senator Jim Molan. Correct. Now, Jim Molan is, is an amazing guy as well. He's a former Major General in the Australian Army. He's a politician right now. And, uh, again, his, his pedigree is really quite sensational. Yep, New mm. South Wales Senator. Yep. And uh, he's been a little bit outspoken as well, considering the situation as well, which yeah. is great. And yeah. I think it's about time, I think, we realise where we stand within that region. I, absolutely sure. And, and there's been a lot of comment, uh, a lot of commentary around what is China doing at the moment. It's, it's being very... Um, pointed about what it's trying to achieve. It's got a, a, a guy in charge who really, as far as he's concerned, is there for the next 300 years, mm -hmm. and whatever he says goes. And that's a really good point that you bring up. We've got mm -hmm. to make people realise, too, that we're not talking about the Chinese people. We're talking about the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. Correct. They're the ones that are leading this charge, if you want to call it that. And, and yeah. Xi Jinping, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, And that's what it's all about. And what is it that they're on about? What are they trying to achieve? How are they going about it? And how is it going to affect you and me and every other Australian. Especially within the near future. Correct. Correct. Because under Very the smoke screen of COVID, so many things can just get in behind the back door. Yeah. yeah. And that's another question too we need to look at. Is, is that actually helping China? Is that hel actually helping the CCP or is it not? Or is it making them panic? Correct. You know, Correct. So it's, yeah. Uh, be, yeah, very interesting night. Absolutely right. And then when you add in an, into the equation the, the little bit of a dialogue, I'm using that as a very loose word, that's going on between the US and China at the moment because one thing for sure, Donald Trump wants to win the next election. His, uh, his poll results aren't all that flash at the moment. 
So what kind of strategies has he got in place? And is he inflaming, is he scratching the, the, the surface of uh, what could be something quite detrimental along with China? It is uh, against US against China. And how do we fit in the middle of all that? Yeah, that's definitely a debate, that one. Mm. That question, definitely a debate. Yeah. So there's kind of a bit of a flavour of where we're headed tonight, which is going to be a very interesting discussion as very. well. Yeah. So we're hoping that you're going to stick with us because it is, it's going to be a two-hour discussion where we've got uh, both the, the guests on for about 40, 45 minutes apiece. Yes, there will be little breaks in between, uh, but it's a very interesting subject, and I think it's quite a, a, a serious subject. It's one that really does need to be fleshed out. It needs to be addressed, and it certainly needs some air. Yeah, we're definitely, we're going to be covering our defence strategies, Yeah, where we stand, mm-hmm. where we're going, and also about the amount of uh, purchases that China have done as well, you know. Yes. For your own knowledge, Chinese state-owned companies now control about 76 ports in 35 countries. That's a lot. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. And so what's their bigger picture? That's it. That's the million-dollar question. And where do we stand within that picture? Correct, correct. So there it is, folks. That is Searchlight for tonight. Well, we'll get our guests on the line, and uh, we'll be back to you in just a minute or four with what's going to be a very, very interesting Searchlight tonight. Bay FM 100.3, the heart and soul of the bay. Want to win a 1000 bucks? Totally work where Capalabar and Hammond can help. It's simple. Go to the... Bay FM 100.3, the heart and soul of the Bay. Bruce Springsteen and his glory days. This is Searchlight with Dean and Ken. And in the uh, the background there waiting to hit the microphone is our first guest for tonight, Michael Shoebridge. Since uh, February 2018, Michael Shoebridge has been the Director of the Defence Strategy and National Security Program at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. He was a senior executive in the Defence Organisation and has worked 25 years in different parts of Australia's national security community. His career has centred on the connection between strategy, capability and resources in national security. He's also been the deputy in two defence intelligence agencies, the DIO and the ASD. He ran the Defence Intelligence and Research Coordination Division in the Prime Minister's Department and was the Senior Policy Representative for Defence in Australia's Washington Embassy. He's also worked with ministers in two Commonwealth Ministers' offices and as head of the Minor War Vessels Branch in the then Defence Material Organisation, Michael Shoebridge led Defence's tendering and negotiation for the Navy's Armoured class patrol boats and the delivery and support of the Minehunter and hydrophonic ships. He's uh, led the team that produced a 2013 defence white paper and also brought the Australian-US defence trade treaty into force in 2012. He's a very, very important man. So good evening, Michael Shoebridge. How are you? I'm good, and I don't feel quite as important as that, but thank you for saying so. Well, you've done better than I have. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, I'm in Canberra. You're you're up in beautiful Queensland, so I, I'm not sure that's true. So we're the, anyway, so we're the winners as far as you're concerned. Okay, I'm okay with yeah. that. I'm good with that. We're, we're in a safe zone. We're in the safe zone up here, uh, Michael. You are, yeah. <laughs> Michael, so welcome very much. Welcome to the show, and thank you very much for taking the time out to talk to us tonight. Um, no, Michael, no where do we stand in the Asia Pacific region at the moment with China? Or what should I say, the CCP? Yes, well, I think we stand at a dangerous time uh, because the Chinese state under its new leader, Xi Jinping, Mm -hmm. is definitely after its return to what it thinks is its central place in the world. And it's willing to use military force, uh, cyber espionage and all means to achieve that. And America and other countries have noticed 
and uh, they aren't quite as keen on uh, the Chinese Communist Party dominating our part of the world, and nor are we. So we're at a dangerous moment. So, so Xi Jinping is basically trying to uh, bring out, revitalise the old ancient Silk Road and sea routes, really, isn't it? Is that, is that correct? Well, he uses um, history, Chinese history, a lot mm-hmm. and acts as if he's uh, some Confucian sage, but he's actually a, a deeply authoritarian Communist Party leader right. who would be very recognisable to Lenin, more recognisable to Lenin than Confucius, the Chinese sage. That, 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 that's very interesting because I think it was the Prime Minister only recently said that it's probably the first time since the 1930s that we actually have what we call what a, a communist dictatorship if you could call it that i suppose well and it's it is that yeah it's a deeply authoritarian regime and we're getting interesting insights into that by the, the pictures and information coming out of hong kong because um, the chinese government is trying to not have hong kong as a separate system but make it like the mainland and that means you've got people like uh, the owner of, of a very successful newspaper the apple daily being arrested under national security laws because he's got the gall to talk with foreigners. Yeah, exactly. That's Jimmy Jimmy Lai, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, and he he has run what you would call a pretty normal media outfit mm-hmm. in uh, any place that has a democracy and has courts that are independent of the government. Right. So, with. The situation, like, where do we stand with the US? I must admit, the US basically has been stirring the pot a little bit with China, which is, I suppose, in some ways a good thing because we definitely do need someone to stand up to the bully. And I must admit, it's been great to see the Prime Minister doing the same thing. Yeah, well, I think the US has woken up a bit late to what uh, the Chinese government has been up to uh, inside America through things like... um, in the universities getting hold of top-end technology and research that they apply for military and spying purposes, Uh, but also uh, in maybe being a bit complacent about the Chinese military expansion into the South China Sea when they uh, built a lot of artificial islands they've turned into military bases. And the Americans discounted that and said, well, they're just targets, but I think have realised that actually... That kind of military presence and that important international waterway really matters. So they've woken up a bit late, but they've woken up fast. And now China policy is right in the middle of this US election campaign. Right. So they're actually using these islands basically as stepping stones, aren't they? Yeah, well, um, yes, they are targets, but you can also put advanced fighters and anti-ship missiles there and make it a much harder part of uh, the international waterways to operate safely if the Chinese get cranky, and that's, that's what they're doing. Right. So their process then is that lately they've been showering a lot of the out-of-islands, a lot of money in, in, these, uh, in these concessional loans. Um, how does that affect us as well? I mean, dealing with these people coming very, very close to our borders. Well, uh, this is uh, the way that uh, China spreads its economic influence. Uh, because it's, it's an authoritarian system, Chinese banks work very closely with Chinese companies. And you're talk- you talked earlier about the Silk Road, yep. and, you know, the Maritime Silk Road, the, di- the Digital Silk Road. 
these these are all Chinese government plans to have a combination of economic and strategic and technological dominance, which centres the world economy into China and gives China uh, global influence as a result. So when you look at a Chinese infrastructure project in Southeast Asia, you need to look at it not as just a great economic business case or a bad economic business case, but also how does it help China project power and how does it help China change government policy in those countries? Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, we've, we've got the, uh, some, some facts here that state that China's state-owned companies now control 76 ports in 35 different countries. Yeah, and there are some very big Chinese global shipping companies. I mean, there are very big other companies like Maersk, but yep. um, Costco uh, is, a, is a massive uh, international Chinese shipping company. It's state-owned. Uh, China Merchants, another big one, it's state-owned. And when you're state-owned in China, the Communist Party has... Uh, your CEO is often, well, is usually a party member, but you also have a party board that helps give the company direction. Right. And we've also got um, the Darwin port has been leased out to the Chinese. And we've also got yeah, the... Well, and, and also the port of Newcastle as well. Is that correct? Well, I don't think we'd do the Darwin port deal again. So right, a 99-year yeah. lease to, yep. to Landridge, a Chinese-owned company. I think that was the start of our, our federal government realising that, um, you know, the territory government maybe didn't have national security in its in right in the front of its mind when it was making these decisions and there was a real gap between the two levels of government we've seen that a bit with victoria because the victorian premier has signed up to the belt and road initiative which is the chinese leader xi jinping's signature uh, strategic project to give china more power in the world right. and the federal government hasn't gone near it yeah, and I must admit the uh, China's confidence has definitely risen um, because of its aggressiveness um, and, and the way yeah. it's been shown around the world, what it can do, and, and, and basically no one's really stopped them within the South China Sea, have they? Well, uh, there has. the good news is um, Australia and other countries, and uh, particularly the US, have continued to do pretty extensive um, military patrolling with ships and aircraft right. through there. Because if you, it's a bit like uh, the common law, you know, if you don't exercise your rights, you can lose them. So international law works a bit like that. So um, we've certainly been a part of continuing freedom of navigation patrols, not within, uh, not close to the artificial islands, but enough to make the point. But no. I, I think there's also some anxiety in the Chinese uh, Communist Party leadership because... Right. Yeah, we were right talking now, about this earlier on. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Right, because they have really stoked a whole lot of resistance because of their behaviour, and they've done it on so many different fronts at the same time. You know, India-China border uh, skirmishes, leaving mm. 20 Indian soldiers dead, and who knows how many Chinese soldiers dead. South China Sea, building military bases on disputed places claimed by other countries. Um, cyber hacking at scale into countries, including Australia. And that appalling behaviour around the pandemic and, and the inquiry. So um, I think that they have stoked a lot of anxiety and they spend more money on their internal security than they do on building this enormous Chinese military. That tells you they don't sleep comfortably at night as a bunch of leaders of the Chinese people. With, with, uh, with all the stuff that's going on in China at the moment, there's, there's a conjecture going around that uh, Xi Jinping 
in his own right, might be in a bit of uh, strife with his own people because they see that what he's doing is probably not the best for China financially. Do you see anything in that? I think there is some of that um, feedback going on, but you've got to remember, here we are talking on, uh, you know, a really good a radio station that doesn't have a whole bunch of government censors controlling it. Every media outlet in China, and now in Hong Kong as well, so we can see with the arrest of that media boss, yeah. is under the deep control of the Chinese Communist Party. So all the information that you hear if you're in China is curated for you by Xi Jinping and his party. There are about 80 million Chinese Communist Party members in China, so there's a lot of them to do that work. So when you get that filtered information, you have a different view of the world, and a lot of them are very nationalistic. And the working population there have actually benefited from what he's actually achieved within China, haven't they? So he's, he's deemed as almost well, a little bit had, of a hero. They had, but the, the pandemic has closed their economy right. uh, like it's closed many other economies. There's about 600 million people on uh, subsistence incomes, and a lot of those have been driven further back into poverty because of the impact of the pandemic. So uh, he had a goal of... Uh, raising prosperity this next year, and he's actually removed that goal because of the China's uh, China's economy being in such trouble because of the pandemic. And that that's been the bargain. The Chinese Communist Party has said, "Look, forget about political freedom. I'll make you wealthier, and you shut up." Well, if you're not keeping making them wealthy, then the deal doesn't work. Yes, yeah. yeah, exactly right, exactly right. Do you think the COVID-19 situation is... I know a lot of conspiracy theorists think that it's a, a cover so that China can secretly develop things and organise things around the world, you know? But do you think it, it could be also their aggression might just be their reason for covering up their own inconsistencies, their own inability to handle the situation? I think that's a really important risk that you pointed to there because if the Chinese Communist Party can't keep public support and legitimacy through economic growth, mm -hmm. then the other card that regimes like this play in history is nationalism. And the best outlet for nationalism is tension and conflict with other countries. That's right. So you can already see Xi has really been talking up reunification, as he calls it, with Taiwan, mm. a 23 million person democracy off the coast of China, and saying he's willing to do it by force, if that's what it takes. Well, mm. that's the kind of outlet for unhappiness uh, in, in the mainland that can divert people's attention from his failings into a conflict. Have you noticed then within the Pacific Island region now with, with, with different places around there, like Papua New Guinea, Samoa, Solomon Islands, Tonga, Vanuatu, um, are they starting to realise now? Are we as a country starting to sort of help them out a little bit more now and, and be more involved in them the, rather yeah, than what China has the, been? The Prime Minister certainly got a lot of attention on those nearby yeah. islands, yeah, because he can see what China is tending to do. Yeah, well, you're right. Uh, you're right. Uh, but, I mean, the South Pacific um, leaders and people are actually a pretty savvy bunch of people. Uh, mm -hmm. In one way, they've used Chinese attention and investment to get our attention and <laughs> yeah. say, well, you say that we're family, but how about you show that we're family? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's worked. So we've, yeah. we've invested building the Solomons an undersea cable, for example. Yep, we're right. electrifying a large chunk of um, PNG. Uh, we're building a new base for the PNG Defence Force on Manus Island because we'd rather it wasn't 
built to be a pretend resort for the Chinese that they can use for other purposes. Yep, fantastic. So, in a way, they're being smart in, in getting what we should be doing for them with the added pressure of the Chinese over the top. But the other interesting thing, and you mentioned this about the Belt and Road and, and their big investment program. Now, at, before the pandemic, the Belt and Road business cases had some very dodgy deals, like yeah. big port in Sri Lanka. That's right. It looked like a bad business deal before the pandemic. But with the collapse of the global economy, these deals that look marginal now look really bad. So China's going to have a big debt problem to clean up in a lot of these deals oh. it's already made, including... Yeah, this, yeah, this is the thing I was thinking the other day. How can they afford all of this? this it's just extraordinary amounts of money. Yeah. Well, they run, they run and own their own banking system. I mean, the Chinese government, these are big Chinese state-owned banks. And one thing that the Chinese government and financial sector has been appalling at has been transparency. So that the actual financial risks that are in these big Chinese institutions is a bit of an unknown to the rest of the world. Uh, very good point. We might take a quick break there. Yeah. And uh, we'll come back and talk a little bit more about that, as well as maybe how we are going to look after our shores, just in case. Yeah, I've got a couple of questions here, too, uh, from, from our, our listeners as well, to put to you as well, Michael. And uh, so if you just Great. hang in the background there, we'll come back in just a moment, get, uh, get our listeners a chance to make a cup of tea and get themselves comfy on their couch. And we'll be back very shortly. Bay FM 100.3, live and local. We're talking with uh, Michael Shoebridge, who's the, uh, the man who's in charge, if you like, of the National Security Program in Australia Strategic Policy Institute. We're calling tonight's Searchlight Program the China Syndrome. Back very shortly with Bay FM. Bay FM 100.3, live and local. And you're listening to Searchlight with Dean and Ken. And our guest tonight is Michael Shoebridge, the Director of the Defence Strategy and National Security Program at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. We've had a very, very interesting discussion so far about where Australia sits in the world, the influence of China at the moment, and how it all fits together in a broader sense. But we'd like to go back into a little bit more of a, uh, a local sort of area, Michael. Um, what's the, there's, there's a lot of conjecture going around that the CCP, uh, through the uh, Confucius Institute, has a lot of influence influence in our universities. What's your response to that? I think the Confucius Institutes are a problem because they're a formal part of the Chinese government attached to their education ministry and they're um, sold as if they're just about teaching the Chinese language but uh, their agenda and their topics have a whole Chinese censorship element. So as you're learning Chinese, you learn the Chinese Communist Party's version of history. And you won't talk about things they don't want you to talk about, whether, whether that's Tibet, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, that the Chinese military, or any topic that Beijing doesn't want you to talk about. The problem with that kind of thing is our universities are built on academic freedom of inquiry and debate. And this curates that and stops topics being talked about. Right. Do you think that, 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 that travels, that traverses just more than the universities? I mean, lately with this real leftist ideology that's around and all the, 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 the movements that are occurring in the United States as well as over here, do you, think, could, do you think the CCP could have some influence in that situation as well? 
I think uh, the Russians have been more in the middle of um, things like election misinformation, right. but the Chinese have an enormous propaganda department and this bunch called the United Front Work Department, which right. is a formal part of their government. And it's all about uh, trying to find fellow travellers who can support Chinese government statements and policy and speak on their behalf, but also about silencing and pressuring critics. And that's that's quite a disturbing uh, way that they have engaging with the world. So, so the, end, the, the, the end point of that would be they are looking for what? Information? Uh, well, they're looking to control the way people think and the way debates happen. Because, you know, just I was talking earlier about uh, people in mainland China, 1.4 billion people hearing only messages that the Chinese Communist Party wants them to hear, regardless of who the message is coming from. Well, that's the same way they would like the rest of the world to work, where companies don't say things that they know the Chinese government won't like because they're worried about losing business. Universities won't let discussions happen on campus because they're worried about losing Chinese students and the billions of dollars from that. And governments don't want to make Beijing unhappy. And you saw that with the really nasty pressure from the Chinese ambassador and foreign ministry when Australia wanted an inquiry into how this pandemic happened. Yeah, exactly, yes. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of those subjects where you can really talk about this for hours and hours and hours. Mm. We've, we've, um, we've covered a fair bit of territory, but the one thing that I think that we really, really... I would like to sort of steer into the direction of is how in the immediate future should Australia and Australians respond to what's happening through that Chinese influence? Well, I think we've got to keep very calm because we've got more power and leverage in this relationship than Beijing likes to tell us. Um, You know, they they did stop the barley trade to show us that they would coerce us with trade, but they haven't wanted to get in the way of our energy trade or the iron ore trade because they need that more than we need to sell it to them. You know, they're trying to get their economy back and running after the pandemic that came out of China. Um, So we've got to realise we have power in the relationship. We've also got to realise that lots of other countries are facing these same challenges from Beijing. You know, whether it's Norway, uh, the South Koreans, the Japanese, the Americans, the Canadians, uh, the UK. So working in partnership with other countries rather than feeling like it's 25, 25 million Australians yeah, they're, facing they're, one... They're not very good at making China. friends, are they? <laughs> I mean, they're not, they're, not, not, they're not the happy guy in the, play, in the playground, that's for sure. No, but they've still got a lot of uh, influence because of the way they can use their finances and their state-controlled yeah. banks and their big technology companies and construction companies. And that's definitely... But, you, you, know, you honestly think that'd be the reason why that a lot of people have really kept silent about the slow growth of the CCP within the well, world's economy? A lot of people have been making a lot of money. Yeah. And some of those people are realising, well, actually, other things come with the money. And, um, you know, airlines, for example, that used to be able to call Taipei and Taiwan their proper destination names um, can't do that because they're worried about losing business with China should they ever be able to fly again. So you've got to be able to look yourself in the mirror as you make the money. And when you have a completely different political system that believes in freedom of speech and not government censorship, then the way you deal with the Chinese has to take what they do very differently into account. Mm-hmm. 
So the ramifications of this domestic group with the Confucius Institute and these 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 worker parties and so on, where do you think they can go from there? Would they create a clandestine groups of people that are running around spreading misinformation? Uh, well, um, they, they don't have to create clandestine groups because um, they can use um, China's digital platform, WeChat, yep. uh, and spread information in Mandarin that's different to the information that they're putting out in English. Yep. Um, and we've seen that happen uh, with a whole lot of um, pretty blunt Chinese government propaganda spraying into uh, Chinese media. Um, and using their students to project that as well so that they will um, silence debate on campus because they've got such strong nationalistic views formed by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, but really, transparency and sunlight are good cures for this, so shining a light on when universities stifle academic debate because they're worried about losing Chinese money. Yep. Um, sh and showing that the Confucius Institutes are attached to the Chinese government, which has this enormous propaganda department, that has caused... Uh, some unis to cut ties with Confucius Institutes internationally. We should do more of that. Uh, and just understanding the reach of this authoritarian regime across their population, whether it's students or whether it's companies, and acting accordingly rather than thinking they run a system of government like we do. They don't. They certainly don't. I've got a couple of questions that are a bit sort of left to centre, but the one that I've sort of been in the back of my head all night, I'm trying to put the words in the right sequence here, but how much Chinese government influence do you think is already embedded in Australian politics for their benefit? Well, I think there was more of it before the foreign interference laws were passed and before the scandal with Sam Dastyari, that mm -hmm. New South Wales Labor senator. Mm -hmm. um, you, the federal election before this last one, there were lots more photo opportunities with um, uh, organisations that have connections with the United Front in the Chinese government, uh, with politicians from all sides of politics. You're seeing much less of that now because they understand more of the risks. So I think some of these new laws and some of the visibility given to the way the Chinese regime operates has reduced that. But I look at um, if the Chinese economy comes out reasonably fast out of the pandemic, there'll be a whole return to, well, look, let's forget our principles and our values and just make a dash for cash. That's right. the thing that worries me. Yeah, definitely a major worry. Well, there's a lot of industries leaving China at the moment and heading into India and other places like that. And I have noticed in, in people that I've sort of, in my field of, of influence, if you like, people are really sort of turning back towards Australian products, Australian manufacturing and so on. There's a lot more manufacturing interest in Australia now. Yeah, local, since the pandemic. local manufacturing is definitely it's on the a way huge up. boost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I think yeah, that's yeah. a great thing. But I think that's got to be reinforced with government stimulus um, programs and 100%. also with yes. government policy. I mean, we've spent a lot of time saying where we don't want investment from in the last few years, including from China into things like critical infrastructure and digital technology. But the government needs to be spending more time saying where do we want investment from? Where are the trusted partners we want to work with in the post-COVID world? Because yeah, none of us point. want to yeah. be beholden to the Chinese state for things that we need in crises. 
Absolutely correct. I mean, it's, it's the old saying is you don't want all your eggs in the one basket. And, you know, manufacturing... If we brought everything that was manufactured overseas back into Australia to be manufactured here, we just don't have the population to do it. It's that simple. So we well, do have we to rely on other countries. We've, there's a bunch of trusted partners in the world yes. that we would love to work more deeply with. 100%. So, you know, that's yeah. Japan, South Korea, yep. the US, yep. um, UK, India, Indonesia. So the world, you know, it's got... 7.6 billion people on the planet and 1.4 billion of them live in China. So there are lots of other partnerships to be had mm. and frankly we're a country of 25 million people. We don't need a big chunk of the global economy to live very well. So, so if that's the case then, quick question, Xi Jinping that when he tried to lay out that domestic circulation policy for, for his economy, relying more on uh, Chinese markets and 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 a dependence on non and, and not a great dependence reduced dependence on non Chinese markets. I mean, where well, would that a fit real in? Problem there, though. Yeah, because he's he's doing several things that work against that at the same time. So he's got this austerity program and anti-corruption program. So anyone that looks like they're consuming too much and living in luxury is more likely to be caught in his anti-corruption campaign and spend quality time in a very nasty Chinese jail. <laughs> so it's yeah. hard to tell people to get out there and spend if they're worried about going to jail. It's, it's so reminiscent of the, of the Lenin days, isn't it? it? Is. Really, it I mean, it's, it's so much. Yeah, and it's very hard to tell people to get out there and spend in the middle of a global pandemic. So that's why iron ore and energy exports are up, because he's going back to his old-fashioned way of stoking the Chinese economy, which is a construction-led boom that's sucking in those kind of imports from us. But that doesn't, that doesn't help him make China a consumption economy. Yeah. So with your knowledge, Michael... Xi Jinping, what, what type of individual are we talking about? What, what is, who is he? What is he? Uh, well, he is a, a deep, true believer in um, Leninist ideology. Mm -hmm. So his, his family was purged and he was purged and he went through uh, what Mao would have called struggle, which means uh, he lived an awful life in his teens. But he thinks that... The fact that his family were purged by the Communist Party and then brought back only made him stronger. And he is seized of the party and the party's control as the ultimate purpose in his life. I suppose when you're in that situation too, if it is like Lenin or even like Adolf Hitler, I suppose you've got people around you that are afraid to say if anything is negative or wrong so that everyone's probably agreeing with him on almost every aspect that he's putting forward. Well, he's had his thought enshrined in the Chinese constitution and only Mao before him had that. And when, you, when you've got, given yourself that kind of iconic status, it's hard for people to say no to you. And if they do, then they get purged as well. But uh, that means he's got a strong authoritarian leadership position. But the thing about authoritarians like this is they look really strong and really in control until it breaks and then the whole thing looks fragile. Mm. Question, Michael. Um, just for our new listeners, this is Bay FM 100.3, live and local. We're talking with Michael Shoebridge, and who is the Director of the Defence Strategy and National Security Program at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. I've got two questions for you, Michael, and I think uh, these are questions that could, um, could, could take a, a bit of chunk to, to answer. So the first question I'm asking is, are we in trouble in Australia? 
no, we're not in trouble uh, because um, we've shown that we've got a government and public that can understand our national interests and a uh, uh, federal parliament and state parliaments that act in our national interests. I look at the way um, Australia, at, between the two levels of government, is handling, handling the pandemic. It's pretty impressive, even though there's some fraying now. Uh, and I look at the kind of laws and policies that have been put in place to manage dealing with this Chinese regime over the last few years, and they're pretty impressive. Um, and other countries are taking notice and copying them. So I think uh, we're in pretty good shape. The thing we've got to do is remind ourselves we have considerable economic power in the world mm -hmm. and considerable influence because of the way we make national decisions. That means we've got lots of friends and we've got... Um, as positive an economic outlook as anywhere on the planet at the moment. I'd agree with that, yes, absolutely. So if Michael Shoebridge was the Prime Minister today, what would he advise him when it comes to defence from here on in? Well, I'd be seeing the pandemic as a real wake-up call for all the critical items that the Defence Force needs if there is a conflict or a war. And I'd be thinking that uh, the fact that Australia didn't but proved it could build medical ventilators and produce masks at scale mm -hmm. shows our Australian industry can build all the things we need in partnership with countries like the US, Canada, Japan, South Korea, India. And I'd be using the economic stimulus that's uh, having to be spent with the pandemic to fix some of those critical shortfalls. Fantastic point, Yeah, so that's a positive path for Australian industry and it... It shows that we're, we're a learning country that learns from the vulnerabilities that the global economy has shown with the pandemic. And we do need our independence. We definitely need our oh, independence you know, in so many different ways. Well, Michael, that's well, fantastic. Michael, we're going to go to another quick break and we'll come back and basically come out with a bit of a, an idea where we'd stand if we do get involved in a conflict. Bay FM 100.3, the heart and soul of the Bay. Michael Shoebridge, our guest in our China Syndrome special on Searchlight. Back shortly. Queensland borders are now closed to Victoria, New South Wales and the ACT to stop the spread of... Bay FM 100.3 live and local crowded house. Don't dream it's over. It's Spotlight with Dean Lawler and Ken Maxwell tonight. We've got our very special guest, Michael Shoebridge, on the line. It has been a very, very exciting discussion this evening. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. And uh, I know dinner time almost for you, isn't it? Yes, yeah, pretty much, yeah. But it's good to work for your dinner, though. <laughs> yeah, Michael's actually invited us around. We'll have to leave directly after this interview and uh, jump on the car. We may be about 20, about 20 odd hours. I think Late, we'll, yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. definitely be there. So I've, keep it warm for us, will you? I've got, I've got a mate who's got one of those things from Star Trek, you know, beam me up, Scotty. I think. <laughs> yeah, very, very good. So as I we're discussing. worry about, you know, you, get, you jump into one of those matter transportation devices <laughs> and does your arm end up attached to your left ear? Well, this is the thing. Yeah, now, we don't know. Now, Michael. Are you really supposed to be talking about those things, mate? I mean, you know, aren't they secret? I mean, I mean, come on, mate. Well, we are live I can't on. Give you any more details than that? <laughs> yeah, yeah you just, you just told us they have. They do exist. Yeah. Okay. Good. So, Michael, without sounding like the voice of doom and gloom, you did mention earlier on that there's a situation that could occur with Taiwan in the near future, with the CCP. Now, I want to put it to you: if the if the CCP decided to invade Taiwan, as they said, to take it over aggressively, and the US then decided to jump in to support Taiwan, where would we stand in that region, and where would we be used in a situation like that? 
Well, then I think it's a it's an excellent question because it's quite a credible thing that, you know, as we talked about, if the Chinese economy has real trouble, and if the international uh, trouble that Xi has provoked by his, you know, seeking a struggle on every front in every way, gets worse, then um, using force against Taiwan and trying to forcibly assimilate it into the mainland like we see with Hong Kong but with armed force to take the place first that becomes very credible and you know 2024 signature date for the Chinese Communist Party because it'll be 75 years since they seized power Um, and he's talked about that as an anniversary that's important and talked uh, much more strongly than previous Chinese leaders about using force against Taiwan. I think step one, though, is for Beijing to understand that the Americans would use force to stop them and that uh, other partners would help with that too. Right. And there's no way we could have an alliance with America and not be part of that kind of conflict were it to happen. Yeah. It's a frightening thing to think that we could go into a worldwide conflict with that type of situation. That, that, it's a scary situation because most of us have not been involved yeah. in, in an actual and war. And on our doorstep. Exactly on yeah. our doorstep, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think the, the good news is that I think Beijing uh, has no confidence at all that if it, if it tried to use force against Taiwan that it would be let do that unopposed. And the more certainty they have that they would be opposed, the less likely they are to do it. So in a public discussion about uh, the, the will of America and other countries to, to act against them if they did that is part of keeping us safer. Right. Well, the only thing we can hope for is that we hope it's going to be like the Indian incident, uh, that they'll be using clubs with wire on the end and, <laughs> and rocks and stones thrown at each other from distance on a boat. Can't see that happening. Um, well, you're right. I mean, two, two uh, nuclear powers, India yeah, and China... Yeah. And when they had their latest conflict on the border, yeah, yeah. Uh, they killed each other with rock sticks and barbed wire wraparound clubs. I mean, yeah, that is caveman. restraint yeah. by nuclear powers. Uh, but um, a, a Taiwan Strait conflict, um, the, if if it started, it it would be a hard thing to control broadening out of because. Course. The, the kind of forces and combat casualties involved would be high, and that's when, in history, conflicts have escalated. So the best plan is to let Beijing know that uh, they would be opposed if they acted in that way mm-hmm. and demonstrate that the Americans and, and their partners, including us, are serious about that. That's why it was great to see five Australian ships joining American naval ships patrolling through the South China Sea up near Taiwan recently. Yeah, that's great. It would be a frightening situation to see if they did take Taiwan, what, what would happen next? Correct. Where would they go next? I mean, power, power well, crazed, you know, it's, it's, it's quite scary. Well, I think they've already had a little bit of an insight into the way the world react, would react with Hong Kong because really yeah. what they've done there with those new national security laws and that really oh, repressive um, so police operation there, and that has been shown to the rest of the world. And the idea that China will only use its power against its own people I think is wrong. If they're willing to act like that against their yes. own people... 
what are they willing to do to others? And, and the smokescreen of you saying that the laws are put there to because yeah. they combat the protesters and, and now they're, they're locking up billionaires yeah. because they didn't like their views being put in the local media. Media, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. So yeah. well, we next? heard Carrie Lam, um, Beijing's puppet leader in Hong Kong, <laughs> saying yeah. life wouldn't change, it'd only affect a very small number <laughs> of people. Well, that was a flat-out lie, and she knew that when yeah. she was saying that. Well, didn't, well they was... Go, didn't they go to the studio as well? They went straight to yes. his business and, yeah. and started going through, uh, rifling through all the papers as well as arresting some of his staff. Yeah. Well, they want to send a message to everybody that works there, not just him. Yeah. Because what they want is um, media that parrots the Beijing Communist Party's line, mm. and you intimidate people with that, that kind of behaviour. So, I mean, the good news is, back to Taiwan... Um, that is a truly democratic country. After you know coming out of a, a military dictatorship in the 80s, it's become a really vibrant, strong democracy. And in a way, that makes the rest of the world see it as more important than before. Yeah. And that that's a good part of keeping it safe, that yeah, the rest of the world points. cares what happens to a democracy so close yes. to mainland China. I've got one last question for you, Michael, and I know uh, um, that you're ready to to, uh, to have dinner, but um, you've been very kind to us. We d- we had we put out an offer to our listeners to shoot their questions uh, to the, to participate tonight, and we had a, a listener called Justin who put a few questions toward the senator who's coming up next. But I think this one is probably more your game, and, and the question is: Should Australia start deploying gunboat diplomacy in the Southwest Pacific? Well, I think we should keep getting a, a deeper um, set of security partner, partnerships with our South Pacific neighbours. And, you know, we've we've built them uh, brand new, bigger patrol boats than they had before. That's right. And we're also funding um, maritime surveillance there that's good to protect their fishery, fisheries as well as their more hard-edged national security. So I think more presence by the Australian military in the South Pacific, including with the Navy, is a good idea. Uh, I wouldn't say it's as old-fashioned as gunboat diplomacy, but if you take your own region's security seriously, then you've got to have a military that can patrol and be present there. So more of that is a good thing. Yeah, fantastic answer. Now, listen, just one more important question. Are you having chips or vegetables with that lamb tonight? (laughs) I think it's baked potato. Oh, baked potatoes. Broccoli and carrots. All right. Well, well, well Ken's going to start the car now. <laughs> I've just turned my microphone off. I'm on my way. I'm there. Michael, thank you so very, very much for coming on the show tonight. We sincerely appreciate it. And, mate, it was very eye-opening. Absolutely. And uh, I think that uh, we've, got, uh, we've given our listeners, if nobody else, a lot to think about. Yep, fantastic. Absolutely. Thank you again, right, Michael. Dean, Ken, Michael, and also give us a, a quick wrap on your, your institute and also to your um, your contact details so people would try to get some more information about sure, it. Sure, sure. So uh, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ASPE, um, we publish all of our research and reports publicly on our website, which is aspie.org.au. And we've got you know, short articles, 800 words, um, and longer reports on a whole lot of topics. And our uh, contact details are on the website too. So feel free to get in touch, follow us on Twitter, and look at uh, the research that's uh, behind what I'm telling you tonight. Right. So that's aspie.org.au. Correct. For anyone out there that wants to chase up on more strategy within the world, definitely the place to look to. Place to go to. Absolutely. Michael, thank you so much. We really do appreciate your time tonight. Enjoy your dinner and uh, make sure you leave some room for dessert, yeah? 
<laughs> Great. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks again, Michael. Okay. Thanks, Michael. Bye. Bye. Well, that was a very intense and exciting conversation. Oh, very. Very. And, and scary in some ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, good to see that there's a bit of a silver lining there, you know? Like, we, we have got people around the world that are willing to stop this type of madness occurring, which is great. Yes. Uh, I, think, I think if I took a, uh, a theme through all of that, it was a positive thing. In 100%. That, yep. Yeah. We shouldn't be as scared as we think we should be. That's right. So, we're, we're, you know, Australia is in a good position. It does have a lot of positive things going for it in uh, strategic terms mm-hmm. and also in economic terms. Mm-hmm. So our value uh, in the bigger picture of things is really quite high, which gives us a, a nice negotiating edge as well. And uh, from a, a going forward type position, we're, we're in a pretty good place. The only way to stop a bully is to stand up to him. That's exactly right. Absolutely right. Very, very, very exciting man to talk to. Yeah, Michael yeah, yeah. Shoebridge. Great guest. Great guest. The Director of Defence Strategy and National Security Program at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And if you do want to shoot an email to Michael or you want more information on the subjects we've covered tonight, that email, the web address once again is ASP for Peter I, ASPI, ASPI.org.au. And uh, I, I would suggest after listening to Michael tonight, he would have more than enough time to answer questions and give you a bit more details on the things that you might want to direct to him um, yourselves. Yep, and we've got a bit of a break now, and I'm really looking forward to speak to the Senator. Yeah, the Senator's coming up next now. The Senator is Jim Molan. Senator Jim Molan is the Australian politician, former Major General in the Australian Army. He's been a Senator for New South Wales since uh, November 2019 in the Liberal Party. He has got a sterling uh, military career, so let's not give away the secrets just yet. Well, they're not really secrets, but let's give away all the information just yet. But he is our next guest. We'll get him on the phone, and uh, we'll catch him very shortly. Bay FM 100.3, live and local. You're listening to Searchlight with Dean Lawler and Ken Maxwell. This steak is amazing, Marie. Better than any restaurants, Bill. Thanks, mate. Don't give him all the credit. Bay FM 100.3, live and local. That's what we're talking about tonight. China and the Chinese influence in our region. Our next guest is Jim Molan, AODSC. He's an Australian politician and former Major General in the Australian Army. He has been a Senator for New South Wales since November 2019, representing the Liberal Party. And during his military career, uh, Jim Molan was Commanding Officer at the 6th Battalion Royal Australian Regiment, Commander of the 1st Brigade, Commander of the 1st Division and its Deployable Joint Force Headquarters and also Commander of the Australian Defence College. In April 2004, he deployed uh, for a year to Iraq to serve as Chief of Operations for the new headquarters multinational force in Iraq. He's been awarded the Distinguished Service Cross as well as the Legion of Merit by the US Government. He retired from the Australian Army in 2008 and later that year released a book called Running the War in Iraq, which I think is rather an interesting subject to talk about on its own. But following his retirement from the Australian Army, Jim Molden was appointed by the Abbott Government as a special envoy for the Operation Sovereign Borders and was subsequently credited with being an architect of the Coalition's Stop the the boats, Australian border protection and asylum seeker policies. Then in December 2017, during the parliamentary eligibility crisis, the High Court declared him elected in place of Fiona Nash, who was ineligible to stand. He was not re-elected in the Senate in the 2019 federal election, Mm. but on 10th of November 2019, Jim was selected by the New South Wales Liberal Party to fill the casual vacancy left by the resignation of Senator Arthur Sinodinos. He was appointed by a joint sitting of the New South Wales Parliament on the 14th of November 2019. It's going to serve the remainder of Sinodice's uh, six-year term, which expires in June 2022. A very interesting subject, a very interesting man to talk to. Jim, good evening. 
Oh, good evening. That's a that's a great introduction. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I didn't write it, but I thought it was a pretty good one as well. Yeah, <laughs> that, uh, fa- good on you. <laughs> fantastic background you have there, Senator. No, well, thank you for that. And and, and when I when I was listening to it then and thinking that uh, uh, it, it, it's an incredible experience to be a politician. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a it's a, a good healthy blood sport to knock politicians, and so everyone <laughs> should. But I tell you what, I have uh, you know, I've, I've I've done a lot of different things in my life, but uh, this is just as complex and just as new, and with just as many specialities, yeah, as anything I've ever done. And uh, I'm only now, after a couple of years, and and a lot of blood, sweat, and, to- and, and toil, I must admit, and a lot of blood. <laughs> Uh, 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 understanding many of the subtleties of it, and uh, you know, I, I will never. I put you, you guys can, but I will never knock. Well, yes, I will. I'll knock certain politicians, but uh, <laughs> but I, I understand that the, 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 the things that you've got to know as a politician are quite amazing, and I am only just starting to understand them. I hope now. Well, you're dealing with so many different personalities, aren't you? Mm. But, oh, and and their individual agendas, that's the tricky bit. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, uh, and the beliefs and, yes. uh, and uh, pressures, you know, pressures come at us from all different directions. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it is an extraordinarily complex activity and it is just so overwhelmingly important. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I often, I, I, I used to joke that if we didn't sit... It might be dangerous, you know, because of COVID, because people might find they can get on without us. But we're starting yes. to sit again next week. <laughs> right. Well, you've definitely got the combative ability yeah, to, 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 to yeah. fight in the arena. Yeah. I'll tell you that now. And, and, and the infantry <laughs> to go with it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you. No, that's good. I've got a quick question before we get too serious. Very quick question yep. for you. What would you rather be, a senator or a commander of the 6th Battalion, etc.? Oh, um, I, I, I've got to say my time as CO, commanding officer of the 6th Battalion was an extraordinary experience. It was, it, it's a manifestation of that first half of your career mm-hmm. uh, where, where you, you are to do, you, are, you, are, you, you spend your time looking at the tactics, the lower level tactics of fighting from battalion and down, you know, this is where the rubber hits the road. And uh, uh, I, I, I've got to say... Uh, the, the highlights of that tactical level of my military career were certainly CR6RAR, but as, as well as a, as a helicopter pilot, the Army Aviation helicopter pilot, um, mainly because of the, it, compared to infantry, I was free. I know, no one was looking over my shoulder as they always do in, in big units. But uh, I don't know, I, I, it is so different. You know, uh, sometimes I think to myself, gee, it'd be lovely to be back in Iraq. You <laughs> knew who was trying to kill you. Well, well I suppose you, yeah. you, can see the, you can see the bullets coming at you in those areas. You just oh, can't absolutely. see those political bullets coming no. at you, can you? Uh, you can't. Uh, I, I've missed a few, I must admit. Yes, and they hit you from all angles. Yeah. Oh, exactly. yes. Yes, they do. So, to on our subject tonight, we're talking basically, we've given the title the China Syndrome, and we're talking about basically the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, not necessarily the Chinese people in general. So, the question I have to ask you is, I've noticed that over the years, especially the last eight to ten years, there's been plenty of people mentioning to the country... Uh, about the threat of China. But it seems to be, the perception seems to be, that we've only just recently noticed 
that China has become a bit of a threat economically as well as strategically within the area. Um, it seems that a lot of politicians, which I can fully understand, are there to support their local, their people and so on, state and federal. And, they, and, and I must admit the urgency for the economy has been a big thing. But now all of a sudden COVID has raised its ugly head and sort of made us realise that we can be in a maybe a possible conflict in the near future, which is very, very close to our shores. Is there a disconnect between the security services and the military and with our politicians and our government? Is that why there's been that perception that there's been a bit of a lack of communication? Oh, no, I don't think so. No? Um, I think there are different reasons for what you're saying. Right, okay, great. Uh, And I think... I don't think it's COVID that has made us look at China in a different way. It's COVID that's made us realise our own vulnerabilities. Fantastic. You know, the fires were bad enough. The drought, we all remember. So Mm -hmm. we go into the fires uh, and and now we're in COVID. And what COVID has shown us is that in any kind of crisis situation, countries will act in their own uh, interests and only in their own interests. We saw the United States refusing to give personal protection equipment to Canada, for God's sake. We saw a breakdown within the European Union of, uh, I'm just trying to think of the name of the uh, the agreement, Shenyang Mm -hmm. Agreement, which a certain number of the EU countries uh, had agreed that people from their country could move backwards and forwards. Well, guess what? They closed their borders, immediately closed their borders. I think what COVID has done, COVID has made us realise how vulnerable we are. COVID has, has, has pointed out to us that although the market forces in this country, which are very, very important, that the market forces have delivered us extraordinary prosperity, they will never, ever deliver us security. Right. And and that's a critical point. What delivers us security is a government taking action to create security. Right. So so suddenly we've got no PPE, uh, and and we have to make it in Australia. Personal protection equipment. We have mm-hmm. to make it in Australia. Uh, resuscitation equipment. You know, ninety percent of our pharmacy uh, stuff comes in from overseas, and we were short of various types of. Uh, uh, sorry, we started running down our reserve of various, various types of uh, pharmaceutical products. So I, I, I think that it was the, the process was that we've been watching China now for a long, long time, and uh, I think I think that that the the what COVID has done is firstly it said you, you are vulnerable, Australia, because you are so dependent on overseas sources, but it's also said. Um, that uh, whatever problems we had before COVID came along, that was an over-dependence on China, is going to be exacerbated by COVID over that period of time. So when we come out of this, we'll have a lot less money. Um, we will be questioning ourselves. We, we will, you know, hopefully we'll have a plan to go roaring into the future and come back. Right. But uh, everything that was a problem with the world, guys, I reckon is exacerbated by COVID. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's a fantastic point. But the concern I have with is that if we do find a cure for COVID, a vaccine yep. of some kind, will we just go back to what we were doing before? Ah, that is the biggest question. I'm, yeah. I'm currently writing a, a chapter of a an Australian Strategic Policy Institute book to be published in uh, in September on exactly this point. Great. And the point the point that I make in that article is that uh, 
if we think that it's a great achievement to come out of COVID and put ourselves back where we were, then we've achieved very, very little. For a lot of sacrifice, you know, the people's, uh, p- people have died, people are sick, people have lost their income, business have gone down the gurgler. Uh, we, we have put ourselves into extraordinary debt. Now we, we've got to come out of this and we've got to, we've got to in my view, redefine Australia. And uh, one of the great drivers of that, of course, it's not as though we've got a choice because in COVID, governments have learned how to intervene much more. And secondly, the international environment demands that we change. You know, the world is not the same. So for us to think that that, that by going back to, say, the the 60s or the 80s or the 90s or early this century... Uh, where everything was lovely, uh, where, where, where the, the, the market delivered us prosperity, we dug holes in the ground and sent it overseas and people sent us vast amounts of money and goods and services and America looked after world security, that ain't going to happen a- again. That in, the, in the short to medium term, I don't know what's going to happen in the long term, in the short to medium term, I cannot see what we had prior to COVID ever coming back. We've got to redefine ourselves and come out of this with a degree of self-reliance which is far, far higher uh, than, than, it's ever, than it's ever been. Let's, let's look at um, 2025, Australia right. in 2025. How different, what would be the differences between 2020 and 2025 in your mind, Jim? Well, what, uh, what will define this in many, many ways is not just the fact that we have incurred debt that we will pay off, and and uh, certainly the, our hope is that we will pay off that debt as we did after the Second World War by simply growing the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, can we do it this time? But I mean, the debt that we have now as a percentage of GDP is nothing compared to the Second World War debt, uh, and you know we, we were greatly helped by the Korean War. Uh, where there was such a demand for wool and others of our products that, that uh, you know, it very much assisted us getting over the debt that we had at the end of the Second World War. We'll come out of this with great debt. But uh, I, I, I think for me to predict what we look like in 2025 goes against everything that I believe in that there may not be a delightful after-COVID period in which we can sit back and redesign Australia to be like it was before. You know, we, we, when, the, when the drought came, everyone said, well, you know, if only the drought would end, then we can, we've got an after-drought period and we can get back to normal. Then the fires came and we said, wow, the fires are going to be over soon, then we can redefine Australia, you know, uh, assist everyone to get back to normal, then COVID came. And now we're saying it again. The, the point that I make is that we've got to assume that... Uh, uh, and, and unlike those previous three periods, uh, we now know that the strategic environment in which we're going to come out of COVID as, uh, uh, as, as, as a country with problems and a world with problems, we know that that strategic environment is more uncertain than at any time since the end of the Second World War. So, so uh, what, what we've got to plan for as we come out of, of COVID is the worst case. And if we're looking to 2025, 
okay, we've got we've got five years. We, we the, you might remember on the first of, Ju- of July, the prime minister and the defence minister announced a, a, a new defence policy mm-hmm. and a, what they called a strategic update, and they they allocated two hundred and seventy billion dollars to the defence function over the next ten years. Yes, that's right. Yep. Um, we've we, we've. In my view, we've got to assume that we may not get a discrete period of time after COVID. Let's say COVID is, is let's say we get a, a, a vaccine in the first quarter of next year. Mm-hmm. And so over the next 12 months, we, we, we uh, inoculate everyone and uh, uh, the world starts to get back together. That's 2021, 2022. Uh, hopefully the world starts opening up and international travel commences, international trade starts to become uh, uh, much more pronounced again. Tourism may start occurring a, a year or so after that. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, uh, uh, three times in a line now, we have failed to have a lovely period of peace and, 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 and happiness. And in order to... In order to be prepared for whatever might happen in 2025, we have got to prepare ourselves. We have got to be strong, not just in the military, but in every part of the functional parts of this nation. And that's that's my point. That's where I was heading towards or or leaning towards because it's not the first time Australia's been in this position. We've done it before. And and it was a lot longer period than what could be forecast for this one, I would assume. Um, But, you know, how how does that affect... We've become very, very content with our lifestyle in Australia. We've been very lucky in this country about the way in which we live and the things that are easily gained through, you know, credit or whatever else or just very easily. We don't have to work too hard for the lifestyle we had up until COVID. And I think, no. I think that, is, that is one thing that every Australian needs to identify is will they ever in their lifetime get that lifestyle back in the same way in the same manner and the same ease in which we did prior to COVID? But I think it's yeah. even more significant now, and the fact is that we've had three situations occur, and COVID really, really has put the nail on the head now. Absolutely. I, yeah. I notice yeah. myself within business now, yeah. employees, employers, it's a different level of thinking again now. Correct. We're totally, it, has, it has changed us. Yeah. And uh, whether it's changed us for the better or not, I'm not too sure at this present time. I think it, we're going to have to wait a little while for that. But I think it definitely has changed the way we view business, Yes. The way we view our country, and the way we we view our politicians as well. What I'm getting at does, has that that thinking filtered down to the everyday Australian, or are they just waiting to see yeah. that life will go back to normal after the COVID thing goes away? Well, I think it's a generational issue. I think yeah. that I agree on that. that our generation may be able to understand it a lot more than uh, the, the the much younger generation. And I forget what they call it, bloody Generation X, Y, Z or something, I don't know. But, right. the, you know, people who are who are just leaving school, leaving university, leaving trades, wh- whatever they're doing. Yeah, that, that, that's, that, that's me, Senator. I'm only 21, but I've had, <laughs> I've had a really hard life. Yeah, yeah, I've just twice. had a very hard life. And a, twice. And I, and I put the dye in my hair to make it a bit grey to make me look like <laughs> suave and sophisticated. Well, it didn't work. I thought, I thought you'd worn out about three heads there at the moment. <laughs> I, I no, go, go, go on, Senator. I think there is a difference between the generations in relation to this. I think it's easier for our generation to uh, to understand that the, the generation who took us into the Second World War and out of the Second World War uh, 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 really, and, and, you know, 100 years ago, 
through Federation and the First World War and the, and the, and the Depression. Uh, those people really set us up uh, uh, for, for what we have enjoyed since 1945. And what a terrible tragedy it would be if we, you know, in five years' time, in the 2025 you were talking about before, we look back and we said to ourselves, well, we were lucky. We went through the best years of Australia's existence. Mm. And yeah. that's what frightens me probably more than anything else, that yeah, yeah, that I... we may have seen the best years of Australia's existence. Um, but it doesn't have to be like that, but it's going to be different. In, 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 my, in, my, view, in, in my view, we have been, you know, we, we talk about, we talk about uh, Australia's experience of conflict, and I, I guess in my background, I, I, I see conflict very much as something that is real in the future of Australia. I can't predict where, whether we'll go to war or not, but it's something that we must be prepared for. Uh, and a, a lot of us talk about the great experience of Australia in conflict being the Anzac spirit, the yes. Anzac experience. And I, I just don't think that's true. I think the great experience, the single most enduring experience of, of conflict and war that we've had since Federation has been unpreparedness. Mm. We have not been prepared for one single war that we have been involved in. Now, we've got to be smarter than that at some stage in Australia's existence and I'm kind of hoping that's going to be this time Yes, the, the she'll be right mate thing does yeah, stretch out a little bit. I think, I think you said we, we were fairly comfortable. I'd say we're complacent and that mm -hmm. complacency has been bought by the fact that we backed the right side in the Second World War <laughs> and we've backed the right side since because America has provided us with the level of security that has allowed us to get rich, fat, dumb and happy. Excellent. Now, Jim, just before and, you go into the next sentence, yes. that's a very good point. I want to, uh, I want you to flesh out a little bit more. I've got a couple of questions on that as well, but we do need to go to a little break and I'm uh, going to let you sure. enjoy that cup of tea that your wife has just brought to you. Right. Let's sit on TV. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little bit psychic, or is that psychotic? I'm not sure which. But, yeah. But, uh, yeah, we'll just take a quick break there, Jim, because we'd like our listeners as well to have a little bit of a break and to catch up with us. There's a lot to Thanks, absorb right. in the Thank time you. that we with it, that we do cover. So back very shortly, our guest in Searchlight tonight is Senator Jim Molan, and he is an Australian politician and a former Major General in the Australian Army. A very interesting subject tonight, and it's called the China Syndrome. We're back very shortly at Bay FM. AFM 100.3 live and local, Midnight Oil, Power and the Passion, Dean Lawler and Ked Maxwell with Searchlight and our special guest is Senator Jim Molan, an Australian politician and former Major General in the Australian Army. Well, we have the passion and you have the power, Jim. <laughs> I wish that was the case. <laughs> Just before the break, we are talking about Australia's state of unpreparedness when it comes to defence of our country. Let's, let's continue down that path. You were just about to make a very uh, salient point. Yes, it's, it's, if we look back in our history, uh, back to back to post nineteen forty five, um, because America dominated the world, we haven't had to have uh, a, a, a force in this country which could defend the continent itself, which could defend the nation. So we relied on United States military power and other forms of power as well to create the stability that would allow us to trade overseas, to travel overseas, to, to keep our defence expenditure low and so use money for other things. 
whilst the Americans did most of the hard lifting and suffered most of the consequences of maintaining uh, a level of world peace. Well, that was, that, that was going swimmingly till the end of the Cold War. And, uh, you know, 18, 1989, maybe 91, the Cold War ended and the, 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 uh, the Americans got to a stage where they were so dissatisfied with their neighbours, uh, sorry, with their allies, and they, they believed that there was a chance that they could reduce their spending. And their spending in today's dollars uh, since the end of the Second World War has been in the order of 750 roughly, very roughly, billion dollars per year. $750 billion per year wow. America has been putting into their defence and our defence. Wow. Whilst we, we politely spend, uh, you know, one and a half to two percent of our GDP. Now, that, that's, that's fine. We've always, uh, uh, since the end of the Howard period, uh, uh, take, uh, uh, except for a period during the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd years, we've, we've uh, always been close to two percent or working up to two percent. Uh, of GDP, that was the that was the, a standard set by the Americans when they dominated the world uh, for NATO's, and only about of the 28 countries in NATO, only about three meet the two percent standard. Uh, uh, so America produced the stability that gives us prosperity, uh, and th that's a very important point to make. Now. What's happened, uh, that th the Americans have always had a strategy that they would spend enough on defence and force their people into their military uh, to the extent that they could win two major wars and a minor war, that is, say, a war in Europe, a big war in Europe, a big war in the Middle East, and a minor war maybe in, in Asia or in South America, simultaneously that they could win. So, you know, uh, millions and millions of people in their military, 750 billion of today's dollars every year on defence, and their young men and women in the military. Now, uh, uh, the, 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 what's, what's occurred now is that we've been at war in, in a couple of times since, the first Gulf War, the second Gulf War, Afghanistan. Uh, Americans uh, are, are sick to death of, of war, sick to death of spending on war, and uh, they're sick to death, in a general sense, of most of their allies. And th th this means that... Uh, and and th so, so two things have happened. Firstly, uh, the two things have happened that, must, that cause us to rethink how we look at defence. The first one is what I've just described. That is, America has gone in their national security strategy from being able and confident that they could win two major wars and a minor war simultaneously... Uh, at the end of the Cold War, they've gone down now to the last national security strategy in 2017. They, uh, they are striving to win one war against China and they uh, are prepared to hold in a minor war. So yeah. what, we're, what this says is that in the period, in the post-Cold War period, 91 onwards, uh, we have lost probably a third to a half of American military power. Now, at the same time, guess what's happened? There has been a rise of four nations and an ideology that are inimical to what we stand for as liberal democracies. And those four nations are Russia, 
China, North Korea and Iran. Mm -hmm. And the ideology, obviously, is Islamic extremism, which has not gone away, which is still there. No, I think they've just In recently risen their ugly head again, haven't they? Absolutely, mm -hmm. and and uh, th th they will make the most of COVID, mm -hmm. particularly in the Middle East, but there's other forces going in the Middle East. So the point I make is that th th we, we get fascinated by China. Uh, everyone thinks, oh, it's all, it's all due to China's rise. Well, I couldn't care how big China gets as long as it's nice and polite to its neighbours and to us. That's right. Um, and I don't care, I couldn't even care how much the other three nations uh, get tough with us as long as America is strong. But America is no longer, no longer has the power it used to have, which said to Australia, you only need to spend less than 2% on your defence. Right. So we, this is a new world. When mm -hmm. we come out of COVID, um, uh, the, the, the strategic environment that we face is totally unpredictable at the moment right. because of the four nations and the ideology, one point. The second point is the diminution, the real decrease in American military power. So have you found now, because of COVID, have, has, have we as a country decided to work together a little bit more rather than being um, separated as far as the states are concerned? I, I'm looking at basically how the premiers have reacted in each individual state concerning COVID. I mean, I know the Prime Minister, I think, has done a fantastic job and got these people together. But are they willing to work together? Are they, are they going to sort of forget that they're part of a separate party in each particular state? Oh, I, I think the states, the states will always uh, view their position, their constitutional position as the dominant position in the Federation. Yeah. Because that's how, that's how our Federation came to be. And uh, I think it was a stroke of genius for the Prime Minister to invent the National Cabinet. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, uh, my, my fear is that the National Cabinet will work brilliantly as long as the Prime Minister's President giving away money. So do you think the, do you think there could be some ideological issues that raise its ugly head uh, as well? I, I, they're all, you can't take politics out of politics. Yeah. Uh, so there will always be political... Uh, there'll always be political factors, um, and s certainly in Victoria, you know, people make jokes about the socialist view of life in Victoria. Right. Uh, okay, that's 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 an issue. Uh, but if you if 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 and and I've seen people who have made an argument that this that the the uh, uh, Labor states uh, have a tendency to close borders and and. Uh, Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not true. Victoria's got problems, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to uh, give Victoria a kicking because now is not the time. Now is the time for for all of us in the federal government to support the prime minister, and who is supporting Victorians in a tremendous way. Yeah. Um, th you know, we, when all of this is over, we 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 may ask, you know, who did what, when, and where, and why, and and who did what wrong. Um, but at the moment, I think it's the time. It's the time to to get us through this, to get the borders open, and to and to get trade going, get the economy up. You know, I, I talk about national security all the time. The most important part of national security is the economy, because the economy gives us social stability, and it gives us dollar strength to uh, to increase other parts of our. Our, our, uh, but, but, uh, our national strength, such but as defence. But unfortunately, Senator, we've got 
an economic crisis at the moment, which we do have, and we've got the government supporting us, which is fantastic, but that also opens the door up to that Belt and Road projects that are, that are, that are put forward, especially within Victoria. I mean, what stops them going to the Chinese to get all this money to get them out of the, the situation they're in? Well, if, they, if, if any state decides to do that, and a state, a state has a right to enter into any memorandum of understanding agreement that it likes, and every state does it frequently with foreign countries. Uh, states can't enter into treaties. Only the federal government can enter into a treaty which is binding on both sides on behalf of Australia. So, so uh, Victoria can sign as, as much BRI as it likes, uh, and, and can say what it likes, but until it actually does something, it's then got to come to the Foreign Investment Review Board. Right, OK. And we have just lowered the the trigger level of dollars on security issues that come before the, uh, the, the Foreign Investment Review Board to zero. So everything that's got a security aspect, this is one of the lessons we learned after uh, leasing the Port of Darwin. Right, yeah. Uh, and we've learned it quite well, I think, but we've now lowered it to zero. So the Foreign Investment Review Board would look at what a state may want to do with the Chinese and decide whether it's in Australia's interest. I mean, I, th- I think it's fantastic that China wants to invest in Australia, uh, but they should, they, they should, they should, in my view, they shouldn't own things. They should be leasing things. Yep. Yep, totally and agree. if we're not prepared, you know, that's what I always used to say about Darwin. If we weren't prepared to put $500 million in, in dollars into the Darwin port, yet the Chinese were on a on a uh, 99 year lease that had a take back that had a, a, a CEO who was Australian more of the board the, 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 the uh, most of the board was Australians and a take back provision if for security reasons we ever had to take back then I'm happy to take China's 500 million dollars yeah let them let them build the port, then we'll take it back if we need to. Absolutely, right. and they would do the same thing, <laughs> and they do exactly well. They wouldn't even let us come into the country. No, that's exactly <laughs> right. There's no equivalency. Yeah. There's a lot of discussion like on that. There is none. Yeah. That leads you me. Know, to... uh, there is no equivalency. Yeah, no. Well, it's definitely a one. It's, a, it's definitely a one-sided affair with China. Correct. Yes, it is, and uh, and it, I've got to say, it has it has worked wonders in this country for a long, long time. We came out of the global financial crisis mm-hmm. because of China, uh, and uh, uh, we we you know we 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 have not had a recession because of China. So, uh, but I, I've got to say, I am blown away by what our government and what our prime minister now says in the strength of what he is saying in relation to standing up for Australian interests. Yep, now, he doesn't stand there and say, it's very dangerous to say, you know, China is a threat or China will do this or China will do that. He doesn't say that. Neither does the foreign minister or the defence minister. And and I think that's very, very sensible because as soon as they say that, there's a different thing for us to say that, for me to say that, or for, for you to say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the Prime Minister says it, I mean, we get, we get you know, what, what, what did the Global Times call us the other day? The... Uh, I think it was the uh, barking dog of the Americans. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and they say the most loveliest yeah. things about it. Indeed, uh, Senator. Uh, that's right. A, a dog barking at China at the behest of the US at the same yeah, time as, yeah. as looking for benefits from China. Uh, and that's the nicest thing that they say about us. But but that, that doesn't matter. Sticks and stones. Uh, the trade with China has increased. And, and 
we should trade with China as long as it's in our interest to trade with China. And at the moment, it is critically in our interest to trade with China. So, Jim, Senator Jim, just uh, we're going to be really, really close to time here, but um, you're sort of leading in the path of a, a couple of questions that have been sent in from one of our listeners, and you're right. talking about the the, the uh, Chinese leases and so on and so on. Uh, uh, one of our listeners, Justin, has sent in two questions, which I think are worth uh, pointing to you. First of all, has Australia overall produced or considered the mineral wealth in Antarctica once the moratorium is finished in 2056 because he's seeing China and the US looking at that area. So what's your position on other countries getting into that area and how that will affect Australia's interests or or solidarity in that area, Uh, considering also the fact that the US is building 10 new icebreakers capable of getting into Antarctica? That's a fascinating question. Uh, I guess what I'd say is that we, we... we have a claim on the vast majority of Antarctica, Australia does, and uh, uh, everyone else ignores that claim entirely. The Indians are down there, the Chinese are down there, <laughs> yes. and God knows who else is down there. Every man and his dogs down there, yeah. Such respect. Every man and his dogs yes. down there now. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and uh, I, I'm, uh, I, I think that, I, I don't think that we, that anyone is considering what we would do after 2056, but it's a very, very good point the question is, though, if we think we have a claim, you've got to be able to defend that claim. That's right. Come and on. and we, we've seen countries like China uh, have no respect for international law, as we saw in the South China Sea. Uh, a possession is 100% of the law for, for, for the Chinese, and if they want to take it, they'll take it. Um, so uh, if we wanted to defend a claim that we might have down there, we would have to build... The, the, the ability to do it, and I, th- I don't think anyone is thinking along those lines. Well, they say we've got claim to, what, 5.9 million square kilometres. Is yeah. that right? Yes, that's, that's a lot yeah. of area to look it's after. A, it's a lot of ice. That's, that's a big gin, gin glass, and isn't that, it? And that's yeah. only that, what's 42% of Antarctica and nearly 80% of the total area of Australia itself. Itself, yeah. Is that right? That's and, right. And so, so that's, that's uh, huge. When, I remember huge. reading uh, that when we sent our frigates down to the, s- the southern seas, the southern oceans, to rescue yachts that had gone down there, that there was a risk involved with that because our frigates... Uh, I hope I get this right. Our ships at the time were not designed uh, to be to be used in those waters, uh, and so you, if 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 you ever wanted to to stake our own claim down there, more than just having research stations down there and a nominal claim, you'd have to build an entirely new force. And and I mean, we've got more we've got more resources in this country than you can poke a stick at. Yeah, we certainly have. Yeah, so I don't know why we, why we would do that just for justice. It would be great to see the government start question. putting some money into us starting to do some local manufacturing and start developing yeah, our absolutely. own oh, that, that, products. There's, there's yeah. your answer. Yeah, that's, yeah. Your, that's your answer. We definitely need it. Well, Senator, that's fantastic. At the moment, we'll go for a quick break and we'll come okay. back with a bit of a summation, a bit of an ending of it. Yep. And it's been absolutely fascinating talk so far. Very, very good. Thank you. Thank you. Do you need a male doctor who will listen to you to discuss your health concern? Was your last skin check over 12... Bay FM, live and local, now streaming around the world. You're listening to Searchlight with Ken Maxwell and Dean Lawler and on the line is Senator Jim Mullen, the Australian politician, former Major General and uh, it's been a very, very interesting conversation. In fact, time's just zipped past yep, so quickly. Absolutely fantastic. Absolutely awesome. I'll, I'll, just before we get into the meat of things, one more question from Justin so we keep everybody happy and his question is uh, that Australia sold a large patch of 
dirt in Western Australia. Uh, China built a military-grade runway on it. Has the federal government put anything into place to prevent that happening again, Senator? Uh, I've, I've heard this a couple of times and I've seen the photos. Um, a, a military-grade runway is probably a 737 runway as well. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think he's been talking uh, about Meriden Aerodrome, I think is what they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I, I forget the name of it, but yeah. you're quite right. Uh, 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 I, 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 we, we can be paranoid about this. If we want to take that back, if it ever becomes a threat to us, we just do it. Yeah, of course. We just do it. Uh, and and I, I think I think that might be a, a little bit a little bit too paranoid, but uh, I've seen it. I've seen seen Justin's view many many times in many many areas. Uh, but you know, uh, what is their intention? I assume it's a mining lease or something like that. And the, and and this yeah. is a lot of prosperity coming into this country. Uh, yes, that, they, they, that, they, that it's, it's it's created a lot of money for the area. Yeah, and, and if it becomes a threat, we'll do something about it when it becomes a threat. So in our last remaining minutes here, Senator, where do we go from here? What's your plan? If you were, if you were running the country, what's your plan? Where do we go after COVID and where do we go with our defence, our well, strategy? Well, my, my, plan, my plan is quite, is quite simple. Um, uh, COVID is a, uh, a tragedy. It certainly uh, is. But COVID is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. For the first time really for 75 years Australians are coming to the conclusion that change must occur and in my view that change has got to be a recognition that as a middle power uh, using the kind of using the example of Taiwan uh, uh, Singapore South Korea Israel Finland Estonia of countries that have gone through real trauma, real crisis, and come out the other side roaring, that's exactly what we've got to do. Right. But we can't just think that there will be green fields beyond. No. Because as I said before, we've been through drought, fire, COVID, uh, and the world is not a happy place. And, so, as, you, and as you mentioned before, we are... Excuse me. Yeah, you're right. So, and as you so, mentioned before, so, we, are, we have a generation of people that have never really experienced major hardship yeah, before either. Yes. Yeah. But, but I think we had that we, we had a generation before the Second World War who swore they would never fight for their country again, and they did. And they did, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, 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 think, I think when the issues become, um, become obvious to us as a society, as they are slowly becoming obvious now, then the society uh, uh, rallies. I've seen, I've seen uh, polls which have said that Australia's attitude towards China, 80% have, in, in various definitions, lost faith in their trust in China. Now, uh, my, my plan really is that leadership is absolutely key. There are big change things in the world, technology, leadership, uh, the trauma of this disruption of COVID. And if you, ally, if you take advantage of each one of those uh, and you ally them with our natural, our natural advantages in this country, such as the prosperity that we had, the resources that we've got, the fact that we own a continent. Uh, our defence potential is unbelievable. Unbelievable. You know, we were one of the richest countries in the world. I mean, our GDP was larger than China, than, than Russia's. So we were the 12th largest GDP in the world. Russia was, was 13th. Wow. Um, so, so our defence potential is extraordinary. We just... We elect at the moment not to do it. My view is that 
the economy is the basis of our national security. Get mm. the economy running. Yes. Once the economy yes. is back up and running, mm. we should we should use the magnificent leadership that Morrison manifests in this country. Mm-hmm. He's a wartime leader just out of war. Well, without a doubt. Uh, and uh, we should then embark on a comprehensive strategy covering every aspect of this country to make us a... a, a, a a progressive 21st century powerhouse in this part of the world. Fantastic. And that will work. And that will work very, very well when we continue the strategy that's been put into place when all the states and the federal governments work together in that unified yes. cabinet, yeah? And yes. all Australians get behind it. Correct. And, and we'll never get everyone. You'll always find the kind of uh, the, the climate anarchists and, and the, the Black Lives Matter people uh, who will never back this society. Uh, but the vast majority of good Australians very much will. That's absolutely fantastic. It's been a very, very interesting night tonight. And also a very positive night. Yes. Both guests have been very, very positive. Absolutely fantastic. So, Senator Jim Mullen, we cannot thank you enough for joining us tonight on Searchlight at Bay FM. It's been an absolutely extraordinary conversation with you. Uh, your contribution has been absolutely pearl. So, uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to leave us with? Well, no, I'd just like to say thank you, both Dean and Ken, for the invitation. Uh, I, I've lived a lot of my life in Queensland and love it. You guys won't let me in anymore, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> no, no, we're, we're, it's only temporary. <laughs> yeah, but soon we're going to be building a wall. We're going to be building a wall soon, uh, Jim. Uh, God help us all. But what could we do without the army units up there in Queensland? Uh, we, we'd be right. lost. Yep. It's been lovely talking to you all and right. to your listeners, and I wish you all the best. And don't forget, give us a, a what about a shout out for our special oh, guest? Oh yes, yes. It's very, very important. We talk about the younger generation, but of course, Dean's daughter, Jay, she would have known all the points that I was going to make tonight uh, <laughs> because she is... She's, so I'm led to believe, Jay, that you are the leader of the, the upcoming generation. Of course she is. And she's actually joining the Australian Air Force. Oh, good honour. Yes. Oh, that's yes. fabulous. That is fabulous. And one of the, one of the, the upsides of COVID is, is that we are picking up in the Defence Force... Uh, a lot of the skills that we have been pouring out of the Defence Force years, engineers, maritime engineers, uh, uh, air, uh, aviation engineers, pilots, uh, and a lot of good kids are coming into the Defence Force. Yeah, it's great. Now, also, too, with your future articles coming up and website? Oh, yes. Uh, very, very important. If people are interested in what I've got to say, and, and I, hope, I hope you are, I'd very much like you to have a look at the website that I've got, which is just jimmolan.com. That's the website. And I put out a fortnightly uh, newsletter, uh, which has always got a a, a big uh, article on uh, national security stuff and and something on social issues. And and the one that went out a couple of days ago, which is on the website, has has an article about what sovereignty is all about and also the, the social issue is TikTok. Well, oh, excellent. I'm looking forward to that one. I, I, that's such a hot subject at the moment. I've got my oh, views yeah. on it. I'd love to hear your views. I'll go to that website and check that out. Especially with yeah, America no, banning WeChat and TikTok now. Well, so talking about it. Yeah, uh, right. Talk about it, yeah. And, and I, I'm the deputy, deputy chair of a committee which is examining foreign influence through social media, which is mind-boggling. Oh, this, this oh huge. man. <laughs> You've got a big future ahead of you with that one. That's going to keep you very busy. <laughs> a lifetime very, job. <laughs> very, very busy. <laughs> Senator, thank you very, very much again. And I will tell you, it's been a very enlightening conversation. 
Hello, yeah, Thanks, nice gents. To... All the best to you all. No, thank, thank you. you very much. Senator... And particularly to Jay. <laughs> good on you, good on you. Thank you, Senator. <laughs> should, should be knocking your door, you knocking on your door anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Senator Jim Molan is our very special guest tonight on Searchlight, along with uh, the very incredible Michael Shoebridge. It's yep. been a remarkable evening tonight. I've absolutely enjoyed every single second of that. And my daughter has just sent me an SMS saying, absolute legend. Yeah, who, you or her or... The senator. The se- oh, the senator. Oh, very good. Excellent stuff. I'm just the dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, the dad's got a bit of influence on the daughter over the years. Anyway, yeah. there it is. So have we... Have we um, I've come out of here with a very positive um, outlook on the future of Australia. I think that with all the stuff that's in the media out there, and, and let's let's face it, media is there to inform the population, mm-hmm. but it also has the opportunity to influence the population as well, and it will do that in accord with its own, I don't know, what's the word, what's its own um, uh, ends in mean or means to an end. So I think that being having the opportunity to talk to these guys in such lengthy conversations and really getting away from all the... All the, the all the uh, the scuttlebutt and all the headlines and all that other stuff and yeah, really get down into the meat of it. Yeah, getting taking all away all the fat off the top and getting right into the actual uh, essence of it all has been really really quite eye opening. But I think the senator made a great point about social media. Yeah, I think it'll depend on how the government and what we're going to be doing in the future is portrayed on the social media. Correct. Because uh, that is really the future. That's what yeah. majority of the younger generation do listen to. I'm, I'm going I'm to. So gonna I think a, I think that's going to be a great influence. I do, I do, and I think that the the mindset that the social media is the be all and end all of everything is, and and its influence is there because people do not research. We talked about this last month. People don't research so much. They just take what's given to them and, and call it gospel. Well, also maybe a bit of lack of checks and balances. Yeah, that and that's what I'm saying. That yeah. Reason, you know, I mean the the best to me the best way to use social media is to turn it off. Yeah. That's that's my aspect. Yeah, yeah, well, tonight, I must admit, like you said before, very, very positive conversation. Yeah. Um, it, I hope, I'm hoping to the listeners out there that it's that it's uh, quietened down some of their fears that they might have had. Yes. I hope it's also enlightened a few people that things could escalate. Yep. People, a lot of people run around nonchalantly expecting it never to happen. Yeah. And I hope it's also made people realise too that we may not be back to what we were. I don't think after we will. COVID. I really don't think we will. And uh, but there are a lot of people not, out there saying not in a we bad way either. By the way, yeah. yeah. Well, we hope I so. think it's an opportunity. It's so. a massive opportunity. Well, Ken, it's been a pleasure once again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dean. It's, uh, I'll just give those addresses out once again for Michael Shoebridge. Um, his organisation's web address is aspi, aspi.org.au. And for Jim Molan, if you want to get to his website, I'm going to do that because I think it's really very interesting. Yep, we recommend you. Yeah, jimmolan.com. So, Dean, that's Searchlight for this month uh, for us. So uh, we've got a... We're going to put our thinking caps on for next month. I've got an idea that we might sort of continue in this direction and take it one step further and see what we could do with that. So um, thank you once again. And thank you. Uh, thank you, every one of our listeners out there, for staying with us across the searchlight tonight. It's been a really, really intense night. If you do have any feedback, we absolutely adore feedback. We want to know whether you think yes. it was great or otherwise. We don't care. We just want to know what you think. And uh, you do that by sending us an email to office2 at bayfm.org.au. Office2 at bayfm.org.au. All the very best to you, and all the very best to you. And also. And also as well. Good night. Thank you. Good night.